2: I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value after eating I relax and enjoy a nap when it was completed fresh weeds appeared now it's been lived in covered by weeds the person in the hut lives here calmly not stuck to inside outside or in between places worldly people live he doesn't live Rounds worldly people love she doesn't love Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In ten feet square, an old man illumes forms in their nature. A Mahayana Bodhisattva trusts without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present. Not dwelling south or north, east or west, firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. A shining window below the green pines, jade palaces, or vermilion towers can't compare with it. Just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Thus this mountain monk doesn't understand it all. Living here, he no longer works to get free. Who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests, turn around the light to shine within, then just return? The vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instructions, bind grasses to build a hut, and don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the song of the Grass Hut. We dedicate this merit to Our original ancestor in India, great teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher, Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher, Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher, Ehe Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher, Shogaku Shinryu. The perfect wisdom, Bodhisattva Manjushri. May all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas extend their compassion to the benefit and well-being of all sentient beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, Bodhisattvas, Mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaphasmavara.
3: Good evening, everyone. Uh, our speaker tonight is Alex Peltz, who's one of the organizers of our Hyde Park group. And um, just want to say that the Hyde Park group, which is part of Ancient Dragons at Zen-, Zen Gate, meets Wednesday evenings uh, Zazen at 6 p.m. and then uh, a, t- a talk and discussion after that. Uh, and it's a different Zoom link than the one that we're all on right now. You can find it, though, if you go to our ancientdragon.org website and uh there's directions to how to get to the link for the Wednesday evening Hyde Park group so uh, Alex thank you very much for being here uh, this evening and speaking to us
4: good evening everybody it is wonderful to see so many familiar faces tonight it is an honor and a pleasure to be speaking at ancient dragon as always um What I wanted to talk about tonight was the chant that we just recited, the song of the grass hut and how it relates to one of the 10 paramitas in our Zen practice, the uh, paramita or perfection of patience. And what does it mean to practice patience? How do we do that? So when I was writing this talk, um, I was uh, very inspired by a talk that Niozan, who was with us tonight, gave just a few weeks ago. Um, in this talk, he was talking about the song of the grass hut, the soanka, and it inspired me to think a little bit more deeply about this because uh, I have been just kind of chanting the soanka on my own for the last few weeks, and I have found it to be a very meaningful chant. Um, It's really kind of sat with me in an important way. And in particular, in this last kind of triad of lines that we have. And so if you would like to listen to that talk, which I highly recommend, it is on the Ancient Dragon website under the podcast. The title of it is Open Hands and Let Go. And so in this Dharma talk, what Neozon was talking about was this line Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. And in this talk, he was talking about the way that for us as Buddhists, we don't believe in something like original sin. Uh, We don't have any idea that um, anyone individually or humanity kind of on the whole are born with something inherently wrong with them, right? There's nothing that we need to be forgiven for just for being born as humans. What we do contend with as humans um, is not something intrinsic in our nature, but it is something that every living being will face at some point or another. And that is greed, hate, and delusion. Uh, The things that, you know, we were speaking about in our repentance vow and so, greed, hate, and delusion um this is not something that is intrinsic to humanity uh we're not born to suffer from these things as some sort of punishment, and yet at the same time, it is something that we will all of us invariably face at some point or another. Um, this is just the nature of things. this is what it is to be a living being and when We're letting go when we are letting go of hundreds of years and relaxing completely. The thing that we're letting go of is this very greed, hate, and delusion. These things which are not sins, they're not faults, they don't make us bad people necessarily, but they're things that can keep us kind of stuck in unhealthy patterns or stuck in patterns that don't benefit us or benefit others. Uh, So I just want to sit with this line for a second because it really, I mean, it's a very powerful line. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent.
1: Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open
4: your hands and walk innocent. And in the, the next line of the poem, we jump to this seemingly different idea where the, the chant does then says thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. And the question for me, when I think about these two lines is what do they have to do with each other? What, what are we learning from the relationship between these two? What does relaxing completely have to do with these myriad interpretations, which are only to free us from obstruction. For me, the key that puts those things together, the key that makes it make sense is patience, right? It's this um, virtue, this paramita of being willing to accept whatever it is that may come, being willing to face thusness, to face reality as it is, as it presents itself to us. And this patience is an active thing. It is a practice. It's not like we can be passively patient necessarily. It's something that does take a little bit of effort. So in this line, thousands of words, myriad interpretations. Um, If you were not aware, this word myriad when you see the word myriad and it is translated from a Chinese source like this poem, myriad pretty much means infinite things. Myriad is kind of a key for any possible thing, whatever exists in the universe, infinite things. And it's like in the line in Genjo Koan where, you know, it talks about being actualized by myriad things. That's the same infinite myriad. That's the same everything in the universe. So to speak of myriad interpretations, to think of myriad interpretations, this is talking about these unlimited interpretations, um, any interpretation that you can think of, any interpretation that can be strung coherently together. And I should pause here to note that as Neozon very helpfully pointed out, um, there is a historical context for these lines. And so the sort of historical context for this poem, when he's talking about married interpretations, he's specifically talking about some of these sort of uh, various interpretations of the Dharma, various interpretations of what the things that we believe in mean. Um, so that's the kind of historical background but the way that these lines have come up for me and the way that they sit with me in my own life and in my own experience um it makes me think that you know if we're talking about myriad interpretations we're talking about infinite interpretations interpretations of what um thousands of
1: words about what and i think that
4: these interpretations and these words are referring to something on a very broad kind of level, on a very abstract level, Uh, and it's talking about life. And what I mean by that is that life as it exists, the reality that we experience, the reality that we exist in, is something that is open to infinite interpretations. Um, It's open to infinite different perspectives and infinite viewpoints. And so to say that, um, you know, to say that there are thousands of words, myriad interpretations, which are only to free you from obstruction. This is talking about the fact that in our lives, in our experience, we are going to come up against all sorts of different opinions. We're going to come up against All sorts of different viewpoints, all sorts of different perspectives, um, all sorts of different ways to think about the world. And these things, these are only to free us from obstruction, even if it's confusing, right? It can be very confusing to have so many different viewpoints. And yet at the same time, these are only to free us from obstruction. These are not to confuse us. And even more than that, When we are talking about interpretations and we are talking about words and viewpoints and perspectives, these are not things that just kind of exist in the ether, right? These are things that are held by actual people. People have viewpoints, people have perspectives. And so to speak of myriad interpretations, to speak of thousands of words is to talk about people, is to talk about this vast diversity of different experiences that people have. And it can be difficult for us um, to be in situations where there are these differing, excuse me, these differing interpretations sometimes, right? And it takes patience to deal with this. It takes patience to actually come face to face with these viewpoints that maybe we don't understand or maybe we do understand and we disagree with, right? That might be even more difficult. It can be frustrating. Um, You know, think about a time when you did something or you said something and it just wasn't interpreted in the way that you wanted it to be, right? Um, You know, you tried to help someone out and they took it the wrong way and they got offended or something. It can be very disheartening for us to see the fact that Reality is so interpretable, right? There's so much richness there. There's so many different interpretations. There's myriad interpretations. But what we have to remember is that these myriad interpretations are only to free us from obstruction. When I think about this word only here, um, the place that my mind goes is, you know, think about you're trying to say something to someone. And they take it the wrong way. And so, you know, you might say, I was only trying to help. You know, I was only making a joke. Right? These are only to free us from obstruction in the same way. Don't get it twisted. These are to help us. These are not to confuse us or to hinder us. And this is a powerful thought that this difficulty that we face sometimes, that this Incompatibility or this incommensurability that we face, these are things that are to liberate us. These are helping us. And it's also important to point out, I think, that these experiences that we have, these difficulties, in the same way that we are not born sinful, in the same way that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with us, in the same way, these experiences are not. Tests or trials. Um, these aren't things to, you know, it's this binary and you either succeed at it or you fail at it. And I think that it is very easy in the culture that we live in to slip into a mode of thinking, um, to slip into an interpretation, I suppose, to slip into an interpretation that when something difficult or something hard or bad happens to us, that this is some sort of test or this is some trial to see if we can do it the right way and rise above it that's not what this is these are only to free us from obstruction these are just there to help us it's not a binary in that way it's not something that we can fail at there's not some sort of gotcha where if we don't if we are not freed from obstructions Then we end up worse than we were before. There is always another chance. There is always another interpretation to face. There's always another time to try. And this is, I think, what we are talking about in the Bodhisattva vows, right? When we say that Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. These interpretations that we face these are Dharma gates. These are the gates into the Dharma. These are the things that we face and we enter the things that open a path up to us. And what I love about this particular vow um, to face these boundless Dharma gates, these infinite, these myriad Dharma gates is the fact that there is a commitment there. And it's a commitment that's based on patience So we're not running away from Dharma gates. We are entering them, whatever they may be. And we are also not promising any particular result, right? Because it's not a trial. We're not saying um, I will enter the Dharma gate and then I will be a good person. I'm going to enter the Dharma gate and then I reach enlightenment. We're just saying that we will enter the gates. We're just saying that we are going to try. We are going to face them. And we're going to be patient with them. We are committing to a patience here. We need to engage with them as they arrive patiently.
1: And when we're patient, that allows
4: us to be present to the moment and to remember that when we face these differing interpretations, These different Dharma gates, these are not things that are there to hurt us. These are not things that are there to confound us or confuse us. They are there to help us, and they are only there to liberate us from obstruction. They're not things that hurt us. These, I I feel like I'm repeating myself, but I need to because it's important. These difficulties are there to liberate us from obstruction. These interpretations are there to help us, only to free us from obstruction. And as I was sort of um, doing my my research for this talk, my brainstorming for this talk, I actually came across a very useful webpage that was, um, forget which sangha it was connected to, but it it featured a talk from our own Asian, Nancy Easton. uh, And it was talking about these three different types of patience as they are formulated in the Mahayana tradition, which is what Zen comes under. So in Mahayana tradition, uh, the three types of patience that we face, um, and patience, the word in Sanskrit is kshanti, it's one of the 10 perfections. The three different sorts of patience are the patience, which is enduring suffering, there is the patience that is the endurance of um the endurance of the wrongs that happen to us at the hands of other people, the, the patience with people that do us wrong. And then finally, there is the patience that in, in Sanskrit the word is the dharma nidyakshanti, which means uh you know, patience that comes from the dharma, patience that comes from study of Dharma. And the interpretation here, uh, which, you know, it came from Norman Fisher Roshi on this webpage. Norman Fisher Roshi explains that another way to think of these three patiences are enduring suffering, forbearing suffering that's caused by interactions with others, and accepting the truth of life. That's the Dharma Nidya Shanti. What I like about the way that we can think about it in this sort of three-way division is that these are all a little bit different. These are not all quite the same kind of patients, but they do all feed into each other. They do all have a relationship with each other. And there's a sense in which they build on each other, right? Because it would be, I think, difficult to accept the truth of life Which is suffering, it's difficult to accept that truth if you don't also have a patience with the suffering that we actually experience in our life. And at the same time, there is a kind of circularity to it where we may have an easier time dealing with suffering in our own lives once we can accept the way that things are, once we can accept the reality of suffering. So these all feed each other. It's not a sort of linear path where you hit one, then you hit the second, then you hit the third. They're all building on each other. And these are all things that are more than just attitudes or emotions or orientations. These are paramitas. These are virtues. These are practices that we need to be active in our effort with. They don't just drop into our lap. We have to cultivate these patiences, and we need to practice them. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we practice patience? How do we learn to cultivate these patiences? And so if we look at the last line of the song, The Grass Hut, the patience sort of, I think, kind of starts to come together here. So the last line of the poem says, if you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. And I don't think there can really be much more of an explicit statement than that. He's saying, be patient. Don't separate from this skin bag. Don't separate from this body. Don't separate from this life. Don't separate from this moment here and now. Be patient, be present with it. Because if you want to know the undying person in the hut, If you want to get a glimpse at the way things work and you want to see what's going on, you can't go elsewhere. You can't escape it. You can't let your mind wander. You have to be patient. You have to be present. Don't separate from this skin bag here and now. And that can be difficult. Um, I think many of us have this experience With ambiguity, which is painful. It's not easy to exist in a reality where we don't know how someone else might interpret our actions. We don't know whether our interpretation of someone else's actions are correct. We don't even really, at the end of the day, know if there is a correct interpretation for someone's actions. Is there just one interpretation? It's not easy and it's not fun to sit with this kind of ambiguity because for us, and I think especially for us as moderns and as Americans living in the Western world, living in a very kind of scientific objective society, we want to know exactly what and we want to know exactly how We want to know exactly why. Because we as individuals like to have control. And by knowing these sort of exactitudes, that's how we can determine how to act. When we know what's going on, why it's going on, how it's going on, that's when we have control over the situation. And if we don't know what's going on, if there is ambiguity, then it's difficult to move forward. We don't know exactly what to do because we can't be sure if our actions will have the effect that we want them to have. We don't know if they're going to do the thing we want them to do. We don't know if they will accomplish what we intend them to accomplish. And so what the Song of the Grass Hut, I think, is asking us to do is to look at this predicament in a different way, is to look at this condition of myriad interpretations and of patience In a different way. And if we can take the poem to heart, in this case, we can transform the experience of ambiguity. We can see ambiguity in an altogether different light. And we can do this by relaxing, by relaxing completely, by opening the hand, by letting go of hundreds of years, by walking innocent when we can loosen our grip on this need to know, on this need to iron out ambiguity, when we can let go of these experiences in our mind, which build up this narrative that being unsure is painful and bad, that ambiguity is a bad thing, we can start to see how patients can open this up. We can start to see how patients... Can allow these experiences to liberate us. It can allow these interpretations to liberate us. We can begin to see that these ambiguities are not things that are in our path to hurt us and they're not there to test us. And not only are they not there to hurt us or to test us, but they are there precisely for the reason to liberate us. They're not to confuse us They're to help us get more clear. They're to help us act in a way that we want to act. They're to help us grow. When we're patient, we can accept reality as it comes to us. We can be present with the moment and we can experience thusness. We can experience the moment in all of its intimacy and all of its reality. And we can be confident in our own interpretation among myriad interpretations and patience is the key here because if you really want to know what's going on if you want to know this undying person in the hut that's all of us here tonight you can't be an escapist you can't let yourself be distracted by something that feels pleasant at the time some sort of uh some sort of surety We can't separate from this skin bag here and now. We need to be present to the moment and we need to be patient to the moment. And it's only through this practice of patience that we can begin to see the liberation, that we can begin to understand that these experiences, these difficult experiences are not a bad thing. They help us. They're a good thing, actually.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Um,
3: If anyone has comments or responses or questions for Alex, please raise your hand, or you can uh, click on um, participants at the bottom, and uh, there's a raise hand function there if you're not visible to raise your hand. So um, please feel free, questions or responses
1: for Alex. Yazan, are you... You raising your hand, Yosan? Can't hear you. I think you muted.
4: Uh, No, I wasn't. Uh, I may later, though. Thank you for the talk, Alex. Thank you for your talk.
3: I'll just add before if if, before anyone else responds that uh, I do think patience is like uh, one of the key practices. Um, of Zen, of 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 bodhisattva activity, just to learn to, and as and as Alex was saying, it's not passive; it's a kind of uh, active, dynamic practice to really pay attention and see how to respond or enter into the various dharma gates. So, uh, thank
5: you for that, Alex.
3: Uh, so, comments, questions, responses, please feel free. Yes, Matt.
5: I'll go first. Thank you for your talk, Alex. I um, chanted this on Saturday. I practiced with Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, and during sessions, we chanted for our um, lunch or midday service. Um, I didn't know, Taigen that you wrote the introduction of this, but this guy's my teacher, Ben Connolly, at Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, and he wrote a book on Song of the Grassroot Hermitage, and um, I read his book for the first time a couple of years ago. I love this poem so much i love the lions you chose they're really good um i'll just uh
3: if i may yeah, yeah go ahead, go ahead. I, not only did i write a foreword to that book i translated that poem from oh, the chinese yeah. uh and uh i'm really grateful to ben Connolly because if he didn't write that book i would have had to write one myself and of course <laughs> it would have been a little different but i like ben's book a lot so
5: please say hello for yeah me. i will i will do that um you know, Ben, I'm in the practice period with him. He's leading it right now, and he's doing the six paramitas, not the ten pyramids, but the six. And we covered generosity, the first one. And when I heard these lines, I thought about generosity. I just met with my practice period partner earlier. We were talking about generosity, and the um, idea of panhandling came up, and panhandlers. And I'm 45 years old, and I have a lot of these built-up ideas about panhandlers. There's this baggage that comes with all these interactions with people who ask me for money and I get caught up in my thoughts and that line, i uh, open your hand, innocent, innocent. I was thinking in beginner's mind, I was thinking my kids, you know, I have all these mixed views about panhandlers, but when I see, when we see one on the streets of Minneapolis, my kids, um, you know, they're eight and 10 and they were, they would say this when they were even younger. They'd, they'd be like, that person is suffering. That person looks so sad and sad and just cut right to the core of leaving all that baggage behind and just seeing a suffering individual, dad, can we give him some money? Dad, can we give her some money? Why? You don't need to have these big arguments with yourself about what they're going to do with the money or if it's right or wrong. And um, yeah, that line that innocence just struck me in that beginner's mind that, um, you know, sometimes we have all this baggage we put on top of it, but if we can cut through that, and get back to that. I think that's really important. And Neozan, I'll, I'll listen to your talk. I want to hear what you have to say about this poem as well. But Ben, if you want to speak to any of that, or not Ben, jeez, Alex, if you want to speak to any of that, um, feel free. So thank you for your talk.
4: Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. Um, it's, it's an honor to be in conversation with Ben Connolly. I, I love his inti- mindfulness and intimacy book. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, thank you for this comment. I, I think. This connection between generosity and patience is really fascinating. It's not something that I had really considered before. Um, and the, the way that innocence ties these things together is so important. This might not be necessarily a directly sort of Buddhist related thing, but the thing that I think about and the thing that came to mind when you were talking about this experience with, you know, folks asking for money on the street is that, um, you know, one of the other hats that I wear is as a community organizer. And so I have done quite a bit of fundraising in my lifetime. And if you have ever done any sort of fundraising, or if you have ever just asked someone for money, you know that it's really not the most enjoyable experience. It's, it's really, it doesn't feel excellent to just ask someone for some money for something. And so for me, I look at it with those eyes where I think if someone is asking me for this, if someone is in the situation that they would ask someone for money on the street, they must really need it. They must. They are innocent insofar as they are a person in need. They are a person who is suffering, looking for help from us. So thank you.
3: Thank you, Alex. Other comments? Ken, hi. Uh, yeah, Alex, um, great talk. Could you
4: elaborate a little bit on that line, on, on the phrase, open your hands? I will try. Open your hands. I My sort of – the way that I come at it is um, – comes from the teacher, Kosho Uchiyama Roshi, who has a book called Opening the Hand of Thought, which uh, in the Hyde Park group has been a continued topic of conversation. Uh, Our, our, another priest here, Fushin Susan Shenbaum is a big proponent of Uchiyama Roshi and I'm very grateful for introducing her, introducing him to me. Um, When I think about opening the hand, I think about letting go, about not gripping so tightly, um, which might sound a little bit redundant or obvious, but the sort of metaphor that has always served me and that has always been so useful to me is this classic Buddhist metaphor of, you know, anger as a burning coal. And so when you are, when you find yourself in this position of you are angry or you are frustrated or you're upset or you're, you know, in whatever mode you might be to hold on to that past when it's necessary. You know, I'm not saying don't hold on to it at all, but to open the hand is to loosen the grip on that burning coal, right? It's to say, take a second to say, okay, let me check in. I notice that I'm feeling really upset right now. And you know what? Actually, it doesn't really feel that good to me to be upset. I don't like feeling this way. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to loosen my grip a little bit. I'm going to open my hand and I'm going to let go of hundreds of years. and I'm going to walk innocent. It's good to see you, Ken. I
1: feel like I haven't seen you in a minute. Other comments or questions, anyone or responses oh, Joe Kai hey, good evening, Alex. Um I was wondering if you could
2: maybe I'm having a little bit of difficulty understanding like who the man in the grass hut is, and it seems like that's the that's like the you know, thrust of this, um, this chant is, could you help me understand that a little?
4: I can do my best. Uh, I I invite anyone who might have more of an idea of who the man in the hut is to please chime in. But for me, I think of it as something of, it's not a metaphor necessarily because we know that there were monks who lived in these sort of little shabby huts, um, but what speaks to me in this description, what I can sort of identify with in this idea of the person in the grass hut is this idea of something that is kind of shabby, something that, you know, it gets the job done, it keeps you safe. It's, it's the vehicle in which you sort of interact with the world. And so for me, the person in the grass hut is the fact that I am a being with this human form which is ultimately nothing more than a grass hut. It's this thing that is constructed, it exists, it serves me for a while, and eventually it's going to fall apart. Um, The question is, what is it that I can accomplish in this grass hut? What is it that I can do here and now, given the particularities of this human condition? Tygen, I don't know if you might have more to say about that.
3: Uh, I could uh, speak on it for quite a while, but I'll say to keep, to make it as brief as possible. Um, well, first of all, the Song of the Grasshop was written by Shitō uh, Sekito in Japanese, who lived 700 to 790, who was one of the important ancestors in our lineage, and also wrote the Sandokai, or Harmony of Difference and Sameness, which is more about kind of the philosophical context and background of the Soto Zen lineage and tradition. To me, the song of the grass hut is about the space of practice. It's not philosophical. It's about uh, the space in which we practice, um, physically and metaphorically. So, with so in the context of uh, actually, Shito literally built a grass hut on top of a rock. His name his name means on the rock uh, near his big temple where he trained many monks. He built this, um, uh, this grass hut. And that's a, there is, as you said, Alex, a tradition of it's kind of hermit practice. Uh, Chito wasn't completely a hermit, but uh, um, the the big rock on which he built that hut is still there in China. I've seen a photo of it Um, anyway. uh, But the, but this song is a kind of, description of our space of practice. You could say our Zendo or, you know, the space where you sit at home, or uh, maybe even the little Zoom box we're each in, or this big Zoom box that we're all in together. But um, um, it's not, so it's not about inside, outside, or in between, but in the hut, uh, the whole world is present, as he says. Uh, So, how do we recognize that we are deeply connected to everything right in the middle of our uh, place of practicing, which is, you know, on one level, just our body, the skin back, sitting upright, inhaling and exhaling, but it's also our connectedness with each other, with um, all the the people in our lives who are important. So it's a metaphor for, uh, this space of practice that is part of what we need to construct together as Sangha to um, support our practice. So I could say more, but maybe that's enough. I don't know if, you Niozhan, know, if you want to add to that. Thank you. Maybe not. Okay. Um, oh, uh, Ruben.
1: Thank you for your talk, Alex. Um, it's good to see you. Uh, Reverse yourself. It was lovely. Um, when I think about patience, I,
4: I mean, I, I, I grew up with people always saying, you know, be patient.
5: <laughs> and
4: like, that's something I, I have a really hard time, working with uh for for like, as i was listening to you and i i, I experienced like for now for me patience now is very much this just this letting go like letting go of urgency letting go of
5: knowing um letting go of cluttering the spaciousness right um how do you deal with be patient
4: it's a very good question <clears throat> it's good to see you too ruben um I don't really know that I have much of a better answer than, you know, the practice of Zen than sitting Zazen. Um, I think that's for me in my life, that's sort of the practice of patience par excellence. Um, you know, I should have, uh, if I could add an addendum, you know, at the beginning of this talk, I should say, I have difficulty with patience. Patience is a big Dharma gate for me. Um, You know, I'm someone who, if I'm waiting for public transit and it's taking too long, I get really frustrated. And I get really anxious too, more than getting frustrated. So like you said, um, patience for me is a matter of letting go. It's a matter of letting myself kind of become, oh no, I think we lost Ruben. Oh, he's back. Hi, Ruben. Um, You know, patience for me is this practice of taking a deep breath, and saying, I'm going to be here right now in this moment. Um, I, you know, in order to, in order to be frustrated about something, in order to be impatient about something, you have to sort of already have a set idea of how it is. Something should be happening when it is something should be happening. And so the way around that for me is to, like you said, to just let go of it, to say, I recognize I would prefer things to move along a little bit quickly. I would prefer that I didn't have to be patient right now, but at the same time, it's going to be a lot easier for me if I'm just here. If I just say, this is what it is. I can rash and I can fight against it and I can get upset and impatient, or I can accept it as it is. I can enter the Dharma gate. I can, be in that grass hut at that moment, and just be with the moment as it is.
1: Thank you. So
0: impatience and waiting for a bus is different from impatience and waiting for the world to get better. Uh, (laughs) And impatience fuels my um, activism, And in a positive
1: way, and energizes me to do things I might
0: not be in the mood to do because they take work or struggle or whatever. So I've been sitting here all night saying, "Is there is patience? are Are there different kinds of patience? Am I am I
1: parsing it wrong?" Because I don't, I don't want to be lulled. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not, I,
0: I'm not, I'm not quite saying what I want to say, but probably I've said enough to give you the idea of the direction I'm, I'm heading in. If I uh, could think a little more clearly. What do you think about that? I I think of you as being an impatient person in a good way. You want to fix things
1: and uh, push and struggle and strive and, you know, do.
4: (laughs) Thank you, Yoshin. It's lovely to see you tonight um
0: sorry i i I had eye surgery i'm not trying to be cool here so but it it does look good on on uh, zoom i'm I'm sort of into it i might keep this look (laughs) stylish. stylish.
4: (laughs) laurel
3: you are cool
0: (laughs)
4: exactly you don't just look stylish you are stylish (laughs) um this is a very good question thank you for asking it um I suppose the way that I would think about that is there is impatience of this sort. There's impatience that is a sort of rejection of the status quo because of the harm that it causes or because of the suffering it causes. And there's also this sort of frantic impatience, which is the impatience of waiting for the bus stop. Um, or is the sort of frantic impatience, which is me personally, I need to fix everything right now, or it's all going to go to hell. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of a good answer and I, I don't quite (laughs) have one because it's, it's, you raise a very important tension. Tygen, please.
3: Yeah. just to add to what you said, Alex, and to respond to Laurel, uh, the practice of patience is not passive patience right. doesn't mean just pa- you know passively waiting and ex- and accepting everything as it is patience is a dynamic practice i mean Al- alex talked about this but that that you're waiting but with an attention with attention and intention and readiness so i think re- part of patience is readiness even though you may not be doing anything right now, you're ready to respond when you see some appropriate response. When you see something that you can do that, would be, that might be helpful, um, then, uh, then, then part of patience is, is to respond, is to um, push that thing sometimes, you know. Um, but it's not doing it in a frantic way, as Alex said. So uh, again, it's it, this is I mean this ta- this practice of patience is set to me a key practice and it's really dynamic and and not passive. So that it just that I'm I'm saying that in response to your question, Laurel.
4: And if if I could add, um, the thing that came up when you were saying that just now is <clears throat> there is a sort of strategy to patience, right? We all know this this phrase: you got to strike while the iron is hot. And you have to be patient. To, you have to be patient to strike when the iron is hot.
1: Yeah, it's all about wisdom, I guess. <laughs> patience and
3: wisdom are connected very deeply. Uh, the the third, pra- third aspect of patience you were talking about, Alex. Uh, another way to talk about that, I think this is a different, maybe a slightly different Sanskrit word, but Anupadika Dharmakshanti is the patience with. I, I think it's basically what you were saying: the patience with um, the unsatisfactoriness of things, and that, or the ungraspability of things, of the fact that we can't get a hold of it, so we have to open our hand, um, and that patience. Is considered to be identical with prajna, with wisdom, and with enlightenment itself. So patience is a very, very deep practice. If does anybody have anything further? Uh, it is getting a long time wise, but uh, any other responses, Alex? Did you have any? further things to say or anybody else okay maybe not in which case um jokai would you uh lead us in the four bodhisattva vows to close and then we'll have
4: announcements thank you all for the excellent conversation
2: Beings is numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's
1: way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.